I miss a green, for example. I'm already upset. When I find my ball in the bunker, I'm really upset. And when I find my ball in a fried egg. Fried egg. The dreaded fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg lie. I'm about ready to run off the golf course. Welcome to the Friday Golf Podcast. I'm Garrett Morrison. And today we're talking about the weirdness of the business side of the PGA Tour. There's been a lot going on on this front. I frankly don't understand all of it. I'm trying to understand more of it. And this episode is part of that. Basically, everything that's going on with the business of the PGA Tour right now has to do with the tour trying to pay for its fight with live and with the Saudi Arabian Public Investment Fund, or the PIF, right? This is an extremely well-funded rival. You could you could hardly get a better funded <laughs> rival. And the tour is just having enormous difficulty retaining its members and, and spending enough to remain viable in, in this new professional golf ecosystem. And one of the reasons that's difficult for the tour is that it is a nonprofit member organization. And that has worked for the PGA Tour quite well so far, but lately it hasn't been working as well. So one of its strategies, one of the tour strategies, has been to explore forming a for-profit company funded by the public investment fund itself, along with an array of wealthy investors and, and private equity types this new entity is going to be called PGA Tour Enterprises, as far as I know. This is, is it's such a, a significant and interesting move, but it can be a little bit hard to wrap your mind around right away. What you need is a good sports business reporter to explain it to you. And fortunately, that reporter exists, and his name is Josh Carpenter. Josh is an assistant managing editor at Sports Business Journal. And his recent reporting has really focused almost exclusively on golf, which is very fortunate for all of us in the golf world. He has broken several big stories related to the PGA Tour's recent business dealings. I have a bunch of things I want to get into with Josh. The you know I want to get into the, the negotiations between the PGA Tour and the PIF, the effect of John Rahm's live signing, the tour's changing relationship with sponsors. And just, you know, whether everyone is spending way too much money on a sport that isn't anywhere near as popular as football or basketball or soccer. So all of that is coming up. But first, if you enjoy the Friday Golf Podcast, if you listen to our sister podcast, The Shotgun Start, if you like what we do on social media and in our newsletter, you might want to check out Club TFE. Club TFE is our membership program. It's $120 a year, and you can sign up at thefriedegg.com slash membership. In addition to all the benefits that members get, like an ongoing discount in the pro shop and early access to Friday golf events, the big thing about Club TFE is exclusive content. We do a weekly design notebook feature that gives people an update on what's going on in the world of golf architecture. We do a weekly course profile. These are in-depth analyses of, of great golf courses with photography and illustrations. 
And we have a monthly member video made by the great Cameron Hurtis. Um, we are really proud of the content that we're doing so far, and we're planning on adding more as we go along. Uh, no specific teasers yet, but we've got things in the works that we're, we're planning on bringing out very soon. And oh yeah, I forgot to mention that we have a monthly member hangout where members of the fried egg team get together and, and talk in a, in a casual way with uh, members present in the chat, basically. Um, and those, those are really fun as well. So uh, lots of stuff going on in Club TFE. Again, it's at thefriedegg.com slash membership. Go see what it's all about. We would love to see you in the club. All right, with that, Let's get to my interview with Josh Carpenter. All right, Josh Carpenter, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Garrett. I appreciate you guys uh, having me on. Yeah, of course. Uh, you know, just to give people a picture here, I'm at my usual setup at home wearing a hoodie, you know, looking like a bum. And, and, and Josh is in a professional studio at Sports Business Journal where he works. Uh, very, very nicely dressed and, and just looking really classy. So, uh, so I, I appreciate the, the effort that has gone into this, but this is a good representation of how the two of us approach our jobs. I think <laughs> only, only my best for the fried egg guys. <laughs> All right. So let's get into it. You know, there's so many, I was, when I was trying to plan this interview, I, I, there are so many different ways, different entry points. And I mean, it's, it, it's just a mess right now. The, the business side yep. of the PGA tour, the, the media stuff that's going on around the PGA tour, the stuff that basically you cover. Um, maybe we could just start with what, what do you think is the current state of the negotiations between the PGA tour and Saudi Arabia's public investment fund? It's hard to say exactly where they stand. I would say, you know, in my opinion, I think the fact I know we all know the December 31st deadline, you know, came and went and there was no deal. Um, I certainly saw it as a positive that they continued talking and said they were going to continue on um, in negotiations rather than just both of them throwing up their hands and saying, you know, we're going to take a few months off and then come back to the table. Um, you know, they said we're going to continue negotiating. I know the the tour itself did not give a date of when it hoped to have a an agreement in place by. I know I think the Telegraph and, and James Corrigan over there reported, you know, by the Masters was a was a, a time frame. So I think that's overall positive. There aren't obviously a ton of details about who's doing what and what stage they're at. Like, is a deal eighty percent complete? Is it thirty percent complete? Like. Not too much detail around that, but overall, I would say it's a positive that they're still talking at least. Right. You know, and that's sort of a, a counterintuitive interpretation of what happened, which is that a deadline passed, right? The framework agreement said that December 31st, this is when we're going to have this figured out. They don't have it figured out, but you're saying basically at least they're still talking. Yeah, at least they're still talking. And honestly, Garrett, like if you look at December 31st, you know, June 6th happened, they say December 31st, if you break open and kind of peel back all the layers of how this deal has to work, December 31st was an extremely optimistic timeline, I think. And it yes. was, you know, a self-imposed deadline. So it's not like it was a, you know, set in stone. And if there's no deal, it, by then it doesn't happen. So yeah, I certainly think uh, extremely complex to get this done. I mean, there's a ton of stuff about it that I don't even know how it's going to play out. Most people in the industry that I talk to they have no idea what's going to look like what. And so I think for them to try and figure that out in six months was going to be tough. Uh, so, yeah, I think, it's, I think it's positive that they're still talking. 
and and they've shown an ability to keep things secretive too. I mean, one of the most amazing things that has happened in this story is the fact that nobody knew that June sixth was coming, and that Jay Monahan and uh, Yasser Al Ramayan of the Public Investment Fund were going to show up on TV talking about uh, an agreement that they had just struck. Nobody knew that was coming, and that and that's highly atypical when it comes to deals of this size in the sports landscape. So if we don't know much right now, then that's probably by design. You know, that doesn't mean there's nothing going on, I suppose. Was it? Yeah, no, I, I wouldn't say so. I mean, was it Rory who said a few weeks back that leaks sink ships or something to that effect, right? So like, and these guys, you know, Piff and the tour, and then you add in the SSG group. These are guys who have done a lot of deals around sports teams with billions of dollars at stake. So they know how these things go. And I think the fact that there aren't a ton of leaks is a good sign. That means that everyone really wants to get this deal done, you know, from SSG to the tour to the PIF really wants to do this deal. I think that's a good sign that, you know, and and the fact that there's not a lot of information doesn't necessarily mean that they're just not talking and, and nothing's happening. And and when you say SSG, you mean the kind of consortium of investors and private equity folks who are investing uh, in this new for-profit entity alongside uh, the PIF. What, what does SSG stand for again? Is That's that sports the, something? Yeah, something? it's the Strategic Sports Group, and, okay. and that yeah. has that has a lot of you know big-time sports owner Fenway Sports Group, which owns the Pittsburgh Penguins, the Boston Red Sox, Liverpool. They're part of it. Steve Cohen, who owns the Mets, he's part of it. Uh, Mark Lazary, who owned the Milwaukee Bucks, he's part of it. Mark Atanasio, if I'm pronouncing his name right, he owns the Milwaukee Brewers. Like there are some really heavy, Arthur Blank in there, uh, owner of the Falcons and the Atlanta Drive of uh, Atlanta Drive GC of the TGL. Uh, He's part of that. So there are some really high ranking sports owners part of that group. which I think is a, is a pretty good example of why the tour decided to uh, keep negotiating with that group specifically. Yeah, not not a bunch of uh, jamokes, um, no. I suppose. And I've never used that word before, actually. That's, <laughs> that's the first time. Um, so <laughs> one big thing that happened in the run-up to this missed deadline between uh, the PGA Tour and the PIF was that John Rahm signed with Liv. And there were a number of interpretations out there that I saw about what this move meant, whether it meant that they were farther apart than ever or closer together than ever, whether it was a a good thing for the future of a partnership between the PIF and the PGA Tour or whether it was a bad thing. How did you interpret all of that? You know, it was a little bit surprising. If you look at some of John Rahm's comments since all this has happened, now he has played it a little bit down the middle. He hasn't been super critical of Liv. He has, you know, but it was still surprising if you see some of his comments talking about being about legacy, about not loving the format. From that standpoint, it was surprising to see him go to Liv. Um, at the same time, I think John has made it very clear he's a uh, he's a historian of the game. And he cares very much about his legacy, his own legacy in the game. And I think, you know, my kind of vantage point, my view on this from when this happened is that this was a big negotiating tactic by the PIF to say, if we can get John Rahm, we can get anyone, right? So if we're going to get John Rahm, you guys have to do this deal with us. And from from John's vantage point, I think I think he probably still, and this is just my, my opinion, he likely still has some issues with the format, the shotgun start and all that. But thinking about his legacy, 
maybe John Rahm thought, I'm going to do this deal with Liv, and that's going to be the first domino that's going to fall and cause this deal to happen for the golf world to come back together. And then 30 years down the road, people are going to look at me, John Rahm, as the person who brought the golf world back together. And that's going to be his legacy. So that's kind of how I've approached it and how I see it. Some intel on that, but a lot of it's just kind of my personal opinion. But there are people who, who feel that way in, in, in the industry. That's sort of the optimistic interpretation. Yeah. And I, I suppose the sense of it is that by leaving to live, he kind of forces the PGA Tour's hand a bit. Because where the, the PGA Tour was moving in the time between June 6th and the end of the year was – reducing the PIF's involvement in the future of the PGA Tour. You know, it started mm -hmm. off with the impression that the PIF would be the main driver or the sole driver of this new for-profit PGA Tour Enterprises thing. But then by the end of the year, we had all these other people that you mentioned earlier entering the mix, and it seemed like the PGA Tour was like, okay, maybe we don't need you, PIF, as much. And by by leaving, John Rahm is kind of almost forcing them back to the table. Is that the the strategic interpretation there, I guess? I, I think so. I think so. Um, and, you know, a lot of the talk up to John's signing with Liv was there's not much happening. Talks are slowing. There's not going to be a deal. And if you look at a lot of the stuff that's come out since then, again, there's not a ton of intel being leaked by the, by the parties involved, but it's been that there's some progress being made at least. Um, toward a potential deal. So again, that's the optimistic take. I tend to be a little bit of an optimist. I know a lot of people said, well, this is just going to divide things further and it's going to be 2026 and we're still going to be talking about all this this war between, between both sides. So um, certainly could be that, um, but I just think I think that's how it's going to play out. I think we'll see a deal. I think John Rahm's going to come back to the PGA Tour in a couple of years, maybe 2025, and just be, I don't know, $300 million richer. <laughs> yeah, not a bad situation yeah. uh, for Rom. I, I mean, you know, another interpretation of this that I find fairly persuasive, and I think that John's reasons were probably manifold, right? But one could be that he kind of felt undervalued by the PGA Tour, and, and he's somebody who has a lot of pride, and that is part of what drives him more so than than money, it seems like. And, and so because he felt undervalued he was like okay here is something big i can do to have an effect right roy's the the boss right now it seems like well guess what if i go to live then all of a sudden i'm sort of the boss <laughs> yeah 100 percent. and some of john's comments over you know you go back and you watch that Ryder cup press conference where john was he was mad he was he, that he was wasn't upset. a joke you know john yeah. had a comment at some point in the last year about i think he was playing in the same group with rory and he said he couldn't walk because the microphones were in his way or something to that effect you know um so yeah i think there's part of that to it as well and he thinks he can be seen as a as a leader and really valued um, as someone with an opinion though i mean to me it's it's startling that uh, december 7th live announced you know john rom as a as a signee and here we sit you know january 10th Live season starts on February 2nd. We don't know what team he's playing for. We don't, you know, we don't know, is he playing on a current team? Is there a new team? Like, uh, it's just, it, it's been a little bit, you know, I know there's a lot going on and a lot to filter through, but uh, it's surprising yeah. to me that, that we're, you know, 
three weeks away, essentially, from their season start. And there's there's not been a lot of info that's come out about what his plans are. Is there even a team for Rom? I mean, it seems like a lot of the the equity and the leadership positions on those various teams have been hoovered up by players who are less significant than than John Rom in this day and age in golf. Yeah, and you do have two. So of the 12 live teams, um, you do have two that do not have team owners that are okay. fully owned. by. So the cliques and the Ironheads both are fully owned by oh. the league. The other sure. teams yeah. all have uh, th- those. Uh, if I had to guess which teams didn't yet have an owner, I would probably have gone with the cliques and the Ironheads. The, the other teams each have a captain, which has an equity stake in the, you know, in that team. Those two teams do not, and so that was kind of the speculation that okay, John will probably join, you know, the cliques, and he'll be that team owner. Um, I think it's been leaked out that there's a third member that that's been added to that team, but still, there's a lot to. There are a lot of unknowns around kind of what the structure of, of Liv's league is going to look like uh, here in a few weeks. Now, the DP World Tour is also a party to these negotiations happening with the PGA Tour and everybody else. What do you see as the DP World Tour's role in this? Are they just kind of like hangers on? Do they have any influence? Like what's 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 going on with them and, and why are they a significant party to these negotiations? I mean, they are a significant part of these negotiations just because of, I think, their global nature, obviously. Like, you know, yeah. formerly the, the European tour, now the, the DP World Tour, like they are truly a global tour. Um, I think they have to be involved in some way. Now, how that looks, I don't know. If you look, if you look even at, I think, Rory's comments this week in Dubai were interesting just because he sat in on all those board meetings for all those, you know, all that time. I feel like some of what he said has to be something that was at least discussed, if not said, all right, let's do this. You know, in some of those board meetings, um, you know, his comments were really geared toward it being, you know, adding that global nature to this new entity, right? Talking about an Australian Open, talking about these national Opens in Australia, South Africa, Singapore, those areas. So I think if, if the PGA Tour or PGA Tour Enterprises were to kind of go to that model, where it's more of a global tour than a U.S.-based tour, then what does that do to the, you know, Sunshine Tour events in South Africa that Louis Ustase and won a few weeks ago? Or what does that do to some of the, some of the events in Asia that they play? Um, that's one of those unknowns that's just, it's unknown, right? We just don't know what that looks like. But I think, uh, you know, based on Rory's comments, like he wants to see a tour that plays 20 to 22 events um, with 70 of the top players. So then if you've got that, then you've got the Corn Ferry Tour and the rest of the lower level PGA Tour guys. You've got the DP World Tour. So how does that all shake out? I think that's one of the big questions we're all kind of asking um, around these negotiations. Well, well, let's talk about that. Th- these are recent comments from Rory mm-hmm. that he made to to John Huggin of Golf Digest, basically saying that he hopes the outcome of all of this is something like a world tour. Now he's made no secret of this desire of his in the past. He's mentioned like the world tour is the obvious direction for the world of golf. That's where I want it to go. I want it to be 22 events or so. Uh, I want it to consist of some of these national opens that have history and, and real weight to them. So we're just not conjuring events out of thin air. Like we did with the, uh, you know, with past iterations of a, a world tour ish, mm-hmm idea. This is where he wants to go with it. 
there are some objections to this, right, which were being raised on social media yesterday by by some PGA Tour players, by Michael Kim, for instance, who's very active on Twitter. His response to this was basically like, the money is in the U.S. right now. Are these U.S. companies going to want to support a bunch of events overseas? A bunch of the players on the PGA Tour and the most significant players on the PGA Tour are, are at this moment, especially now that a lot of international players have left for live, a lot of the most significant players are Americans, they, and they, they might not want to travel to the extent that a world tour schedule might force them to travel. And so, you know, when, when the idea of a world tour comes up like this, thinking it through with your business reporter brain, are there some real difficulties in, in actualizing this kind of structure? Yeah, there are. I mean, I think that some of the things you just mentioned there, but at the same time, you look at, you know, surely there are some global partners, some global sponsors that would love to to title sponsor an event in Japan. Like think of the, you, also, you already see the Zozo championship over there, right? But think about, you know, even look at, look at Live Adelaide and how popular that was. You know, there's a big Australian brand um, or, or, or a brand from somewhere in that part of the world that would love to sponsor an event down there that's got 70 players, that's a national open. Um, so I think there's a possibility from a sponsor standpoint, to me, it's like, how do you structure the, the, the current, the way the current TV deals are, they're around the PGA Tour being a US-based tour, right? NBC and CBS, they love that three to six window on Sunday afternoons. I love that window, I'm a golf, not like I love that window. I'll admit it's going to be tough watching an event in Australia that's finishing up at I don't know two in the morning, right? So I Australia think, is like the worst time uh, for for Americans. It but is obviously it's the best time for Australians. So there you go. It is, and I hate it because like you know, based on whatever once I've never been to Australia, but every every golf nut who loves Australian golf, like it just sounds like amazing and something you'd want to just sit and watch every day, but. I got to sleep. And so it's tough to, you know, unless you DVR and watch it, watch it back later. Um, I think that's one of the the big keys, one of the big obstacles. It's like, how do these TV networks do that? If you're going to have a national open that has the same point of emphasis that, you know, a big tournament on U.S. soil is going to have, how do you do that? Like, I don't think of a major golf tournament in Australia is going to air on the CBS network at 2 a.m., is it? I don't know what CBS airs at 2 a.m. because I'm never awake um, at <laughs> right. that time. So I, I mean, I, they, they don't want to do that. They can't no. want to do that. And I wonder if the, the media rights deal that currently governs the way the PGA Tour is broadcast in the U.S. has some sort of uh, provision about that. I don't know. Like, right now, that media rights deal goes through 2030. Yep. And so would it even be possible, would you just have to like scrap that deal somehow in order to create a world tour? Yeah, I don't know if you scrap it. Like I said, I haven't seen the contract, obviously, so I don't know if there may be a clause in there that says- I I haven't either. Maybe this is the part of what we start to need to do is like read this (laughs) contract if it's available everywhere. If you've got it, send it over to me, Garrett. Yeah, exactly. Uh, I know. That's um, not going to be coming out publicly. Right. Uh, So, you know, but maybe that is part of this investment. If you see $7 billion, you know, put into this PGA Tour Enterprises, like surely that's enough that you could- tweak these contracts to say, well, X event in Australia is going to be on this network or, 
you know, this or that. Um, I don't know, but I think that's one of the big things, like the media aspect of this PGA Tour Enterprises and where that money goes to, in, you know, you've seen all the talk about enhancing broadcasts and cutting out commercial load and all that. Like, that's one of my biggest things that I'm kind of watching is like, how does that money affect the fan experience from a TV standpoint? Right. Yeah. And, you know, where does the money come from? Because right un until this point, so much of the money is coming from that U.S. media rights deal. Mm -hmm. That was the big thing in 2020. You know, Jay Monahan sitting there <laughs> while uh, COVID was markets crashing on <laughs> causing yeah. the markets yeah. to go down. That, but what was happening there was Jay was announcing a huge new media rights deal that is inflated in the way that so many sports media rights deals have been inflated in the past decade or so. Right, the the combination of the continuing profitability of the cable bundle, though that's going down, and you've got these tech competitors coming into the mix, all that competition is just driving up the money. Golf got a big piece of that because they they negotiated that deal at exactly the right time. Yep. Right, twenty twenty before COVID was kind of the time to do that. That's going until twenty thirty. That was supposed to be the big funding source for the PGA Tour. Now, if you're going to replace that, you can only replace that with a huge amount of money from private equity and, and from the PIF, basically. So I guess the new idea would be that, okay, instead of getting everything from this media rights deal, we now need to get everything from rich investors. Yeah, maybe so. And maybe, and again, I'm not a, an expert, expert on the media that the contract side of it, but maybe there's, you know, money that comes in from the investors. Maybe there's still money that's coming in from the networks. Um, I'm sure I would think, you know, the networks aren't just going to be sitting on the side and not, you know, investing on this. So, um, right. yeah, I think it's, I think that's the big question is like, where's the money coming from and how is it going to be, uh, dispersed? Um, yes. You know, to a to a PGA Tour, a golf product that let's be real, Garrett, like golf is a niche sport. Um, you know, I've been very like outspoken about that. I'm not knocking golf; it's just it is what it is. Um, it's a very bloated sport, and I think it's you know since Liv's arrival, and you've seen these twenty million dollar purses and winners winning four and a half million dollars. Now we just kind of I don't think twice about a guy winning a golf tournament, winning four and a half million dollars. But I remember when Liv first arrived and we said, we're going to pay winners four and a half million dollars. It was like, wow, that's a ton of money. Um, and now the purse sizes have gone up so much. I, I don't even think about it anymore. But, uh, you know, one of the comparisons I kind of drew is that like, there's so much money in golf these days. And if you look at PGA Tour final rounds last year, average 2.2 million viewers on CBS and NBC, which that's that's decent, right? It's decent. It's not bad for golf. It's not Tiger numbers, but NASCAR, by comparison, averaged almost three million viewers for its race telecast on Sunday afternoons, similar time slots, you know, that sort of thing. So, that's you know, me, I get in my kind of golf bubble, and I think it's the most important thing out there, and everyone's interested and wanting to know what's going on, but uh, I sometimes forget that it's it's not. Um, <laughs> And, and there are other things out there. So like, is this current model with all this money, is this uh, sustainable? Um, and I wonder a lot about that. Yeah, it, it sure doesn't seem like it. And that's kind of what I'm uh, thinking towards in, in 
my questioning here because like, I don't know if the next media rights deal for the PGA tour is going to be like the one they got in 2020, because it looks to me like the cable bundle and uh, everything that that created for sports is kind of going away. Tech companies are, are entering the arena and there's not going to be as much competition for these media rights in the future. I don't know if like 2030 is going to be the the biggest deal in the world for the PGA Tour, given the viewership numbers that you're mentioning. And so in order to keep up the, the way that they're paying players right now, they would just need to find a completely different source of money because, yeah, as you say, it's it's just ridiculous, right? Uh, th- this is just, just way out of proportion. And, and that brings us to PGA Tour Enterprises, this for-profit thing that I don't really understand. <laughs> and <laughs> I'm just going to throw it to you. I know that you can't <laughs> – nobody knows that much about it. <laughs> and, and uh, you know, what do you think this for-profit entity would look like and what, what purpose would it serve for the PGA Tour? What, what do you know so far about that? I don't know about what it would look like necessarily. I'll throw out like some questions that I have. It's like, obviously, it's, there's going to be a ton of money in this. Um, you're going to have the for-profit side. You'll still have the non-profit side. But like, where does that money go? Like we've like we've spoken about. Like, does it go to? I mean, I'm sure it's going to be spread, you know, throughout. But how does it impact TV? How does it impact? Current sponsors who have signed, you know, there are various sponsors who have signed on through 2027 under the current model. Well, how does all this influx of new cash change that, right? Do they renegotiate all of those deals that are through 28 and 29 and 20? Some are signed on through 2030. Cognizant just came on to sponsor the Palm Beach event through 2030. Um, I would imagine they probably, they were already a PGA Tour sponsor through the President's Cup. I have to imagine they wouldn't sign that deal without having some kind of inkling about like how this will play out, right? Because they obviously know it's going to change. But that's one of my big questions. How are sponsors going to um, going to play out? What's the leadership going to be like for this new entity? Like we know there are some names that we can't really ha- haven't reported yet because it's not totally confirmed. But there's some pretty high profile names um, in the sports business, not necessarily golf, but in the sports business that have been kind of targeted to help lead this this entity. Um, You know, I've written about the tournament funding model on the tour, where the tour is basically coming back to these events and saying, hey, we need more money to cover, you know, purse increases. Like, you know, does that model go away now that PGA Tour Enterprises is coming along? You know, there's there's a ton of questions about it, uh, not a ton of answers uh, at this point, but I'm I'm hoping we can find some here in the next few months. Another question I have about it is the issue of uh, how players get paid through it. You know, obviously, one idea for this new company is that it would help prop up these ridiculous purse sizes that have emerged in the era of competition with Liv. But another idea that's been floating out there is that players will have equity in this company, and that's going to be a big source of compensation for them. Now, I'm I'm really dumb about this stuff, so I apologize if this is like a one on one. I am question. too, Garrett. But how how would this work? How, how do, players have equity? Would 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 all the equity kind of get get dominated by this this current generation of players, and there wouldn't be much left for future players? I mean, how how does equity turn into something that 
continues to be appealing for players in the future. I mean, I get like if you give Tiger Woods a certain percentage of equity right now in this company, that might be very lucrative for him. But how how does this become an ongoing thing for players on the PGA Tour? Yeah, and, and Jay Monahan spoke about it. He was at the the New York Times that that Deal Book Summit about a month ago, and he he brought this up. And there's some there's some sort of scale that takes into you know account. You know, you know, I'm is is Jack Nicholas going to get some equity in PGA right, Tour enterprises? Yeah. Is, yeah, Arnold Palmer's estate is right. Is some you know ten year old who's out there grinding on the range now who's going to be a stud in in ten years? Is he going to get equity? I mean, I'm sure he will, but um, that's that's one of those things that's just not not really known yet. Um, you would imagine, obviously, a guy like Tiger is going to get a ton of equity. A guy like Rory is going to get a ton of equity in it. Um, it's it, there are so many layers to it, right? Um, honestly, again, not trying to give you a non-answer, but I just, I just don't know at this point. No, I I think it's good. I I think your approach to this, what questions are we asking about it is Mm -hmm. the right approach because that at least clarifies what we're going to be looking for in the future. Um, yeah, a lot of details we don't know yet about PGA Tour enterprises. Um, let's get back on some ground where you've been doing some real like fact-based reporting. A big reason the PGA Tour is pursuing this model is that basically they can't pay for the purses right now. <laughs> the purses are too big. They're, it seems like they're running out of money. And one thing that you reported recently, uh, a scoop that you got in November, is that the tour will now expect tournaments and title sponsors to put up an extra fee to fund these purses. Could you just take me through that story? What's What's happening here? Yeah, so in order to, and this again, this all kind of ties back to Liv's arrival. You know, if you look, let's use Wells Fargo as an example. That tournament had a nine million dollar purse three years ago, and then before last season, it jumped to twenty million dollars um, in one year. And again, like dealing with in sports business and all these numbers, you're kind of like, eh, whatever. Eleven million. It's eleven million dollars an increase. It's it's a lot of money, right? A lot of money for these tournaments to to put up, and it just happened in such a short amount of time. And so what the tour has done is they've come up with this new kind of funding model where it's it's an increasing scale starting in, I think it starts in 25. And again, I'd, I'd have to go back and look at the, it starts in 25 and then goes through 27. And there's a certain fee that they're going to be asked to be paid to, to pay in 2025. It's going to increase in 2026. And then uh, going on, it'll stay, it'll stay flat. But so they'll pay like 50% of the fee um, in 25 and then a hundred percent of it in 26. And that number, uh, it depends on the, the type of event. So a signature event fee is going to be more than a full field. So like the Sony opens this week. So the Sony opens not going to pay as big of a fee as the travelers championship. Um, and then you have the fall events are going to pay an even smaller fee than those full field events. So there's that fee. Um, but then you also have, on top of that, there's a small percentage of revenue that the tour is asking the tournaments for on top of that fee. And so it might, I think it's, I think it topped out at like 2%. They're not going to ask for more than 2% of revenue, which again, you might say, okay, it's only 1% or 2%. That's not that much. Uh, 2% of revenue for the Phoenix Open is going to be a lot more money than 2% of revenue for the Butterfield Bermuda Championship, right? Not to knock that tournament, but they're two totally separate events. Um, right. And so the tour is asking, 
asking, telling these tournaments that this is coming. Um, there were a lot of tournament organizers that were not happy with this. Um, when they first heard about it, they started saying, you know, it's going to take from our charity dollars. It's going to, you know, and again, if you look at it, it's like, okay, a million dollars or $2 million here or there, it doesn't seem like a lot, but when you break down every little single thing that a title sponsor or a tournament pays to put on, it's quite a bit of money. Um, and so a lot of tournament officials, organizers were, were pretty upset with this. I think they, they've come around to it a little bit and they're, I don't know if they're okay with it, but they're more open to it, at least from the standpoint of thinking, all right, PGA Tour Enterprises is coming along. What money is going to come from that? And the tour, you know, has been there for a lot of these tournaments over the years. During COVID, the tour, you know, came in and helped out a lot of tournaments, kept them going um, through that. So there have been some people I've talked to who are kind of like, all right, let's, let's wait and see how this plays out. Um, but certainly like, you know, that coupled with the fees that they're, you know, the title sponsorships are, are commanding, um, have led to some, to some sponsors saying, we're not sure about our future with the tour. You know, you saw the news of Wells Fargo saying after 2024, we're gone. Um, RBC has come out and said they're on one year deals for 2024. Um, and they're going to assess and see if it's worth sponsoring those events in the future. There are a couple other events that, you know, I've been told are on one-year deals for 2024 um, and, are, and are doing the same thing, taking a wait-and-see approach because of that. You know, the tour has been asking for these signature events, asking them for $25 million a year to sponsor that golf tournament, which if you look at that compared with the, you know, ratings numbers we talked about earlier, do they really equate? Is it really worth it? And I think a lot of the sponsor, and again, it's not just based on ratings. There are a lot more things that come along with being a, a title sponsor of a PGA Tour event, not solely based on ratings, but I think a lot of those sponsors are starting to say, you know, is this worth it? And 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 you have to wonder, I mean, so basically they're waiting and seeing if PGA Tour Enterprises becomes a thing, then maybe it will still be worth it. But right now, do you think they're looking at other ways to use their money? Like we could go sponsor some other sport or, you know, the, and, and get a much bigger return on our money for that, as opposed to this, you know, one week a year, this tournament that very few people watch, we have our name on it. And then we get all these benefits like the pro-am and, and whatever else and the charitable component, which is significant, but ultimately they might be looking at other opportunities, right? Yeah, I think that's, if, if you use Wells Fargo for an example, like Wells Fargo obviously can afford $25 million a year, right? They have enough money to do that. But it's like, is this our best, uh, is this the way we want to spend our money, right? A lot of these tour sponsors, they're huge companies and they can afford it, but it's just like, do you want to? I've used this example a lot, Caesars, signed a 20-year deal with the Superdome in New Orleans uh, for $140 million a year a couple of years ago, I think. So Caesars has their, you think about $140 million over 20 years, you can do the math, it's less than $25 million a year. Um, they've got their name affixed to that building, which hosts the Final Four. It hosts NFL games, you know, 10 times a year. It hosts concerts, you know, it's, like I said, it's a fix to that building. You're flying a plane over the Caesar Superdome. You see that Caesar signage over that. You know, Wells Fargo here in Charlotte, if you fly over Quail Hollow Club 
right now, there's not Wells Fargo, uh, you know, signage plastered all over the place. So <laughs> there's a lot of that that goes into, I think, what these sponsors are are looking at. Are there some sponsors, title sponsors, who are worried about the potential impact on charitable contributions of all this? Because you'd have to think the tournaments are organized as charitable organizations, 501c3s, I think, right? The the PGA Tour is a is a nonprofit member-run organization. That's a different designation. The tournaments themselves are constituted as nonprofit charitable organizations. That that is really their purpose. Are there some who are worried that this this new fee, these these this new revenue sharing might cut into what is supposed to be their purpose, which is charitable contributions? Yeah, I think I think they they have to be a little bit, right? That was some of the from talking with tournament organizers who obviously deal with the sponsors on a regular basis. That was a lot of their initial concern was about this charity money and, you know, if you look at the PGA Tour over the last 40 years, like one of the biggest, you know, things about the PGA Tour is how much money they give back to their communities through these sponsorships. Um so yeah, I would have to say that's that's got to be uh, a concern for some of these sponsors is how is it, you know, anytime you, anytime on the service, if it says, Hey, this is going to cut out charity dollars, that's a bad look. Right. And so I think, yeah, the sponsors have to be thinking about that as they kind of navigate how they want to proceed forward. And I guess the larger question is, you know, what do you think about this general move from nonprofit to for-profit? This is a major change in the history of the PGA Tour, which since the time of Dean Beeman has defined itself as a nonprofit organization. And now that is all shifting. I wonder whether you think that this is the this is the only move that they can make and what you think the general effects of going the for profit direction might be. I don't know. Uh, I don't know what the effects of moving to four. I mean, if you look at it, the PGA Tour, has got to be one of the only major sports organizations leagues that's a that's a nonprofit, right? I can't think of that's the thing. Yeah, I can't think and of I, any I others. Wonder, that I are. guess. I guess to give you something specific to address with that, uh, do you think it changes the incentives of the organization at all? Right? Because it, it it occurs to me that one thing about the PGA Tour as a nonprofit in its nonprofit era is that it was a little bit uh, complacent, right? And and to an extent, a little bit divorced from reality. There wasn't much of a motive to innovate with its product. I don't know, maybe maybe just a little bit of good old-fashioned capitalism, right? If it's suddenly a for-profit driven kind of organization, then is there more motive to improve the product and to actually attract people to it? Yeah, the, certainly there could be. And if you look at, I mean... <laughs> You could say, you know, Live Golf has done a lot of damage to the PGA Tour, but if Live Golf arrives and then all of a sudden you look five years later and there's a for-profit model and there's seven billion extra dollars in the, you know, in the tour or enterprises or whatever you want to call it, um, then yeah, I think there could be incentive. And, and listen, these investors are not investing to just lose money, right? Um, there's been some reporting out there about how this isn't, you know, typically a strategic investment like this, they might be looking for that return on that ROI pretty quickly. And I think this group that they've gone with has, at least from the reporting that's been out there, they're willing to take a, a longer term approach. So that it might be 10, 15 years down the road where they're where they're wanting to see that return. But yeah, there's going to be a huge incentive to make sure that this is a, a profitable, you know, entity. 
Um, so yeah, I think there's a lot of incentive there. And, and, and do you think that this was the only possible move? Was the PGA Tour kind of backed into a corner here? It had to go for profit. I think so. I mean, if, if you look at the way, like I said, the model that's, that they've kind of gone through and, and the, the purse increases and all that, uh, I don't know how much money the PGA Tour has in its reserves, but I don't know if that model's sustainable long term. So I think that's kind of, I think that's kind of the direction that they had to go in. And that's why I think they want to get this deal done. Right. Yeah, they, they want to get to get to this potential future as, as quickly as possible, I guess. Sure. You know, all of this is happening because of the PIF's entry into into golf, right? That's, that's, that's the inciting event of all of this. Now, versions of this same thing are happening in a bunch of other sports as well. I believe your publication recently named Yasser Al-Rumayan the most influential person in, in sports business or, or yep. something to that effect. Yep. So what, what is the argument that, that Yasser and the PIF are the most influential movers and shakers in sports in general right now? Yeah. I mean, if you look at, you know, it's not just live golf, it's, you know, tennis playing events in Saudi Arabia. And you've seen Saudi Arabia be mentioned with women's golf, right? You've seen these, you know, global superstar soccer players go and sign deals with Saudi Arabian teams. You've seen, you know, sovereign wealth start to come into the NBA a little bit, right? You've seen, you know, obviously Saudi Arabia has invested in Formula One and Premier League soccer, like, and the PIF is kind of at the heart of all that, right? Um, you know, three years ago, you would say that Saudi Arabia wasn't invested that much in, in global sport. And now you look at, you know, and there were all the questions about human rights issues and all that, and justifiably so. But now you look and you've got sovereign wealth almost across, you know, global sports, right? And the PIF was kind of the first one, I think, to, to jump into the boat there. So Yasser being the governor of, of the PIF, um, you have to look at him as a pretty influential guy to make all this happen, right? Yeah, he's got the strings to the single biggest purse in the game right now. Yeah. And he's obviously very, very smart with it uh, to a degree that probably the PGA Tour didn't anticipate. Like, I think Yasser has probably been severely underestimated by a lot of people so far, maybe no longer, but uh, he has made a lot of very, very smart moves with a lot of money. Yeah, hundred percent. I mean, you know, Jay Monahan, I think said it, or I think it was Jay or one of the PGA Tour luminaries, whether it's Jimmy Dunn or one of those guys, you know, back in the summer said, listen, we can't compete with this. I forget, maybe I'm making this up. I think one of them called it a war chest with the right. amount of money that the yeah, Saudis Yeah, Jay Monahan had said something to the effect at the, at the Canadian Open that, you know, we can't, yeah. if, it's a, if it's a matter of spending, we can't do it. And so maybe it took them until this summer, this past summer, to realize that. But certainly, like, yeah, it's $700 billion. That's a lot of money. Yeah. Um, well, so, you know, when we think about this general effect on the sports world, I guess I have, I have, I have two questions here. And, and I'll ask you the first one, which is, do you think that these questions about Saudi Arabia's human rights record and the initial aversion the lot of people, especially in the West, especially in the U.S., had to Saudi Arabia's entrance into golf and its initial forays into like soccer, into the Premier League. Right there, I, I there was a lot of pushback, obviously, in golf 
which I which I was part of, um, and and I'm still part of. I still don't feel good about it uh, personally, but that's just my own opinion. And there was a lot of pushback with the I think it was the Newcastle uh, yep. soccer team. Yep. Do you think that that is going to kind of go away as the PIF gets involved in more and more sports? Yeah, I mean, I think it's it'll be interesting to see how it how it happens if they invest in. You know, anytime I think they were, if they do invest in a new sport, a new league or something like that, there will be that blowback. But I think just if you look at the way it's gone with the PGA Tour, you know, there was all this blowback when Live first launched. And now, like, Garrett, do you ever hear that brought up at all, really? People don't say the word sports washing very much anymore. But we don't talk about sports washing uh, that much anymore. Um, yeah. we, we don't, you know, that, that's just, you know, the live guys at their tournaments, they're not being asked in their pre-tournament press conferences about the blood money and all this anymore. Right. So, yeah, I think it's, you know, again, if they enter into a new league or a new sport, you'll see it bubble up for a short time and then it'll probably die away because cash is king, right? It's a little depressing to think about. But at a certain point, you just get exhausted with it, right? Because it's like, oh my yep. gosh, they're invested. The PIF has invested in like every single sport. Everything. They're in F1. They're in soccer. They're in, they're in, starting to be in tennis. I mean, it's just everywhere. And at some point, you just get tired of of objecting to it because it's it's the world you're part of. And if you want to be a sports fan, then this is this is part of that now. And it's it's just. Yeah, it's just a thing. Now, the other the other question I have about it, uh, about this general influence of the PIF on sports is, you know, do, do you see a general trend in how this changes the sports themselves? I mean, we've talked a little bit about how it's changing, how it might change golf, right? It might it might create kind of this more global tour, a little more concentrated, uh, you know, tournaments at kind of the elite level, right? A, a, a packageable television product. Is that influence, is there kind of a similar type of influence that's happening in other sports where things are kind of being centralized or, you know, basically what's the, what's the effect of this kind of money as it enters sports in, in general? Yeah. I mean, I think there's got to be a positive, again, I'm not the closest follower of, of Premier League soccer, but I think by all accounts, like Newcastle has kind of turned it around since, since the PIF got involved with them, right? I think Formula One. Now, Formula One, you could say, okay, that success, is that a byproduct of of PIF money coming in? Or is it a byproduct of, you know, Drive to Survive launching right when COVID hit and everyone's yeah, sitting Liberty at home Media's general, the Liberty general Media's general news. Yeah. But it's an interesting question as to whether the, the PIF's money kind of enabled some of those moves. Yeah. So I think it's, you know, you just look at that and, you know, again, that that reserve of $700 billion, if you've got that to put into to anything, um, I think it's if you think about some of the ways that the the golf product might be enhanced, you know, with that money, and then you just think about all the opportunities with those other sports. I mean, are we going to see you know final rounds on Sundays, commercial free, sponsored by Aramco? Um, as a golf fan, I would love that. I know there are a lot of golf fans out there who would. So think about that example, and then how that would span across across global sport. And yeah, you would you would think it would be a pretty positive impact on the the fan experience at least. It would be the ultimate bittersweet moment to see a final, a commercial free final round sponsored by Aramco. <laughs> that would be the, that would be like the the embodiment of the Larry David gif where he's just kind of well, 
Yeah. Yeah. Uh, uh, uh. yeah. Um, yeah. All right. One, one last uh, uh, quick hitter here. Uh, you covered the TGL quite a bit mm-hmm. last year. I think you were more uh, uh, kind of knowledgeable about about what the TGL was doing than anyone. You know, it was going to be a big piece of the puzzle in the first couple of months this year. And then suddenly it wasn't. And to me, it's just so strange that it went away because their arena collapsed. Overnight. Yeah. It just went away. And and was that was that all there was? That they that the they had a problem with the arena and they just couldn't couldn't do it, or were there other underlying issues here? Yeah, I don't know if there were other underlying issues. I mean, I think certainly, you know, having your arena deflate and having it be unusable, like if that's where you're gonna play and it's not, you know, we sit here on January tenth. January 9th, last night was supposed to be the launch date of the TGL. And so if you, you know, I thought about it last night, like looking back at some of those photos of that arena, like would it have been ready by last night? I don't know. I don't know what it takes to construct that sort of thing. But um, I think you could kind of read into some of the comments by players. You know, Tiger himself said at the Hero that he thinks that, uh, you know, again, I'm paraphrasing, but he basically said that, it would give them, you know, delaying it by a year would give them some time to iron some things out. Um, several other players had similar uh, comments. And so, yeah, I, I think that's the the main thing, right, is that if you don't have a venue that's going to be based around technology that's supposed to be played indoors, then how are you going to do it, um, right? But I think with, with anything, a, a year uh, of planning and tweaking and this and that, like, that should help, right? Get things more in line. And, and frankly, it was a pretty uh, aggressive timeline from when they launched to everything coming together, right? So there were still a lot of, you know, various things that we didn't know about, whether it would be team names or, or something like that, um, you know, were, were out there. So, um, yeah, I think I think it's got some, it's got a year to go before, before launch and, uh, you know, we'll see what happens. Are, are you still pretty bullish that it can be a successful television uh event i think it can be i think it can be um again with this PIF negotiations and what happens with with pga tour enterprises i think we'll just have to kind of wait and see what happens yeah all right josh thank you so much for being on the podcast today we'll talk to you again soon thanks garrett we uh, appreciate you having us This episode of the Friday Golf Podcast was produced by Matt Rusius. If you have a moment, go give us a rating and review wherever you happen to be listening to this podcast. These ratings and reviews are, are a really good form of support for the Friday Golf Podcast. They help us find new listeners and, and continue to improve what we're doing here with the podcast and with our company. So thank you for listening, and we'll be back with another episode early next week. Thank you.